Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Can you remember a moment in your childhood where you were doing something entirely unselfconsciously and then somebody called you on it? Or the first time you held back from expressing yourself because you were afraid you'd be embarrassed? My guest, Keegan-Michael Key, can. But he says that experience made him a better actor. I probably already did my 10,000 hours by the time I was 13. I remember being in a neighbor's basement, and I was downstairs dancing. And I remember, to this day, it's a child, one childhood memory that I have, feeling wonderfully free while I was dancing. And then someone came up to me and said, what are you doing? What, is something wrong with you? Is something wrong with this child? <laughs> so it shut me down. And then in your mind, you, you start to put an encyclopedia. Okay, so I better watch them because that was the most horrible feeling I've ever experienced emotionally. So I better just figure out what they're doing and then do what they're doing. And so, yes, I think both Jordan and I are very facile at taking the cultural temperature of a moment and figuring out how do we rise or lower to that temperature. It's been uh, – <laughs> the pathology has been useful. It's bullseye. You might know Keegan-Michael Key from his show Keen Peel. You might know him as President Obama's official anger translator, Luther. He's got a very specific opinion of how to deal with race. Do the funniest thing. Discover the funniest thing. That's the mantra. That's the golden rule. And then everybody can say what they want, and pundits can talk about how it's racial or not racial or it's black or it's not black enough. I, I can't concern myself with that too much. Plus, we'll meet a couple of Key and Peel characters who are simply too creepy for TV. Later, I'll talk to Titus Burgess from The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and 30 Rock. Have you ever had that nightmare about being on stage and then something totally out of your control goes totally wrong? Well, Burgess was a Broadway star before he got into TV. And he'll tell me about the time he sang a solo at the Tony Awards live on network television and his microphone stopped working. It wasn't until I got finished with the performance and got my phone out and had all these missed calls and texts and such and people were like, oh my God, what happened to your microphone or whatever? And then I freaked out. I, I wasn't nervous while it was happening. I freaked out after the fact. And I'll tell you about Chevy Chase's greatest achievement, Fletch. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Keegan-Michael Key is a comic actor who throws all of himself into every role. His work's sometimes big, but it's always specific. First on Mad TV, then as half of Comedy Central's Key and Peele, for which he got an Emmy nomination. Key's the kind of guy who can imbue life into even the briefest characterizations, no matter how silly they might be. Jamar is Jamar, Jamar is Lamar, University of Middle Tennessee. Let's take a listen to a clip from Key and Peele. This is the first appearance of Mr. Garvey. Uh, he's a substitute teacher with years of experience teaching in inner city schools by Keegan. In this sketch, he's teaching a classroom of what look like suburban white kids. Let's take a roll here. Jay Quellen. 
Where's Jay Quellen at? No Jay Quellen here? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, do you mean Jacqueline? Okay. So that's how it's gonna be. Y'all wanna play. Okay, then. I've got my eye on you, Jay Quellen. Balake. Where is Balake at? There's no Balake here today. Yes, sir. My name is Blake. Are you out of your mind? Blake. What? Do you want to go to war, Balaki? No. Because we could go to war. No. I'm for real. I'm for real. So you better check yourself. D-nice. Is there a D-nice? If one of y'all says some silly ass name, this whole class is going to feel my wrath. Now, D-nice. Do you mean Denise? Keegan-Michael Key has just been nominated for another Emmy for the show. His latest movie, Keanu, is available to buy in digital HD this week. I spoke with him last year. Keegan-Michael Key, welcome back to Bullseye. Great to see you. Thank you, you, Jesse. I I love the way that that sketch inverts this expectation of uh, someone coming in to a bunch of poor uh, people of color and fixing them. Right. It's reverse dangerous minds. Yeah. Reverse dangerous minds. In fact, in my mind, I have always fancied that Mr. Garvey has a military background. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't – it only right now at this moment occurred to me, oh, that was Michelle Pfeiffer's thing. She was a Marine. She was a Marine, which was always weird. You're like, come on. The, Wait, the Michelle, my, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer was a Marine was a in Marine. Dangerous Minds? Yes. She was, she, she was a member of the United States Marine Corps. And that was what made her tough enough to be able to handle the schools. You, you know what I mean? But that's that's so I think that that got in my mind when I when I made because there's something very martial about Mr. Garvey. And um, but also that's always been a thing that we wanted to do in the show in the first couple of seasons. All we ever talked about was Jordan made up this term comedic judo. So what you do is you you subvert the expectation. Right. So they're, 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 like the best one is probably the movie, movie heckler sketch we did. We were going, why would they do this sketch? I, this is so unoriginal. I've seen black guys talking to the movie theater, but you've never seen black guys that have master's degrees in film doing that. Do, you know what I mean? It's that little whip, whip, little zigzags or, or double zags. And sometimes we get double zags, which is good. What kind of schools did you go to? I went to Catholic schools mostly. I went to 16 straight years of Catholic education from first grade to my senior year of college. Were you, uh, uh, were you raised Catholic or did you just go to Catholic No, school? no, raised Catholic. Oh, yeah. My dad, my father converted his entire family from Baptist to Catholic. He went to Utah State University in Logan, Utah. He was one of two black students in the entire school. Uh, it was 1963. And he met uh, a Monsignor at a place called the Newman Center. And the Monsignor took him under his wing. Because my dad was living... A relatively isolated life. You're trying to make do, but he's a six foot four, you know, two hundred ten pound black man on the campus, <laughs> on an agriculture. You know, you, how did you he can't end up miss there? Him. Well, my grandparents left uh, Tennessee when he was about ten years old, and they moved to Salt Lake. My grandfather played in the Negro Leagues, and um, uh, they met, and then they they were like, "We got to get out of Memphis." So they left, and my great grandfather, my maternal great grandfather, he worked at a speakeasy in Salt Lake City 
which makes him a real badass. Because an African-American man who works in a speakeasy in a dry state in 1958 or 56 – I, but my grandma said – I guess it was that bad in Memphis that they had to go to Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, I'm imagining like a police officer interrogating like, can you describe the man who was running the speakeasy? <laughs> I honestly don't. He was about 6'4". Four. Yeah, exactly. I can't think of any other distinguishing characteristics. I can't think of any other characteristics. distinguishing characteristics whatsoever. <laughs> and my grandma said, what's a speakeasy? She's read in an article that I had said this. I was like, grandma, don't be – no need to be coy. And she goes, well, we called that a dinner club. And I used to wear an apron and it had little slots in it and you could put shots in the slots. And then I would – you would sit down. It was customary to sit down to take the order and then you would pass drinks underneath the table just in case there were any G-men around to bust the establishment. And so that, that's – and then my grandfather worked at Mack Truck. He was a janitor at Mack Truck in uh, Salt Lake City because they – you know so many of the trucks are manufactured in that part of the country because there's just truck stops all over Wyoming and Utah and northern Arizona and uh, so they they moved there, and then my dad just grew up. They grew up there, you know, with his siblings. Um, so it was pretty much my family, and maybe one other black family. It was really like twelve black people in the state. And so he went to Utah State University to go get his uh, social working degree. So you come from a, basically a long line of uh, of multiculturally fluent people. Oh yeah, and I'm, I'm right now. I'm. I mean, I, I, we haven't even opened the can of worms. This is just my adoptive family. This is just the couple that adopted me. <laughs> We're not even talking about my biological family. And then my parents, you know, parents divorced, and my dad married a woman from Northern Ireland. And so, yeah, it's it's my life's this very wonderful hodgepodge of cultural experiences. And I would say the same thing. You know, Jordan's from Manhattan. So enough said. Everybody you know, it's just it's a different cultural landscape than me being from. Detroit, where most of my friends, you know, a lot of my friends I grew up with, most of my friends are white working class people or, or white middle class people, you know. Did you feel self-conscious about race when you were in high school and you had mostly white friends? 100 percent. Oh, yeah. Grade school was tough because when I started grade school, um, the demographic of the school was probably 50 percent white and 50 percent black. By the time I graduated from that same grade school, it was 95 percent black. And I just... The things that I like, everything becomes very intensely emotional and personal. It has nothing to do with not liking black people or being ashamed of black people. But why are we, why are we being mean to each other? It's a cultural thing. It's trash talking. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't understand the efficacy of it. Why are we doing it? What did you feel like you were supposed to do? I felt like I was supposed to, for lack of a better term, because it's the one that we use as shorthand in the States, um, that I was supposed to act black or be black. And it got worse in college, like in college. A lot of people in college called me an Oreo and why do you behave this way and why, why you act white? Why do you talk white? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Keegan-Michael Key is Emmy-nominated for his sketch show Key and Peel. He also produced and co-stars in the movie Keanu, which is released on digital HD this week. There's a great sketch, uh, in a, I think it was in this last season, uh, where Jordan is singing bass in an otherwise all-white a cappella group. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and you kind of come in. You're just like a goofy buddy of one of the of guys. Of one of the other guys, yeah. And you come in and sort of top his soulful, extemporaneous uh, filigree at the <laughs> end. <laughs> um, and then everybody kind of goes home and the two of you – well, in fact, let's let's take a listen sure, to yeah. it. Sure, yeah. Our love is here to stay each and every day. We know that we will never part. 
<laughs> wow. Great work, everybody. Troy, I love that little Motown outro thing. Super soulful. Cool. Thanks, Lyle. Yeah, just uh, came to me, so I went with it. Wow. It's crazy. Hey, is this uh, where the acapella group meets? Oh, hey, Mark. Hey, Lyle. What's going on, buddy? Mark, get over here. Yeah, Guys, this yeah. is my buddy Mark. He just transferred from Minnesota. I thought he could uh, sit in on a few practices. I don't know, maybe join the group. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's do Always Been My Girl again from the Always top. Always Been My Girl. Okay, and, I know that, yeah. uh, Mark, show us your stuff. You got it, man. <laughs> All right, guys, ready? One, two. Three. Doom, 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 doom. There goes the girl who owns my heart. I knew she was the one right from the start. Our love is here to stay each and every day. We know that we will never part. Bo ba do bo bo bo. Mark was out of this world. Gosh, okay, well, hey, it just, it just came to me, so I just went with it. Great. Well, keep going with it. What is going on in this is uh, the two of you <laughs> basically being in this really incongruous place to be having a blackness contest. Right, right. But it's our experience. It's actually me and Jordan's real life experience. That's what we gravitated toward because of the way we were raised and the, and where we came from and how economics dictated our life and our upbringing. So that that was a sketch that was really easy for our writers to write for us. Like that's that's an experience that – and also the people of color in our writings – on our writing staff, that's their experience too. Because in, in the world of improv, there's a preponderance of white males. And any producer, very often a producer will tell uh, – I had a friend who said, hey, what, what are my chances of getting – getting on you know, a resident stage at the Second City. This is years and years ago. And the president of the Second City at the time said, buddy, I got more than enough smart white guys. <laughs> That's not what I need. I got a surplus of smart, snarky white guys of all shapes, sizes, and stripes. So I, I, I can't use you. you know, there's like 75 guys in line in front of you. So that was the world that, that Jordan and I were in. And I think you know, the extrapolation, of course, is the battle. But other than that, we always kind of banded together. The people of color always banded together um, in the um, in the improv communities that we were part of. One of the big differences between uh, Key and Peel and the shows to which it's often compared, which is like um, either African-American sketch shows, which generally means either in Living Color or Chappelle's show, um, or uh, other sketch comedy things going on right now, especially sort of social commentary ones like Amy Schumer's mm -hmm, show, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think is especially especially a big difference with Chappelle's show, which is probably the show to which it's compared the most often, um, is that, you know, I think Chappelle approached that show as a stand-up and hit every, you know, one of the great stand-ups of his generation. Oh, yeah. And one of the funniest dudes ever. But, like, hit every scene as a stand-up would, you know, pressing his personal voice that he's refined over that point, you know, 15, 20 years on stage. Right. Um, and you and Jordan Peele tend to disappear into things. And it seems like you are very keen specifically to disappear into things. First of all, what you said I think is completely accurate, that the stand-up mind works different than the actor mind. And... I feel like because of my training as an actor, I don't know another way to do it. Like I don't know another way but to just become fully immersive and try to make sure that everything – I look at the sketches 
the text of the sketches very often is sacrosanct to me. I think it's important to find and call character from these words. But people, when we hear people say, and it, it, they don't mean it to be pejorative, but when people say skit, it's like it's something you can just screw around with. And there are sketches you can screw around with, but there are sketches where you can really drill in. And so it's important to me to bring that aspect of acting to the pieces. To be a, a successful stand-up, you've got to be able to stand back a little bit and look at the world. And I've never been able to do that. I think it's because of my upbringing. My parents were social workers and all their friends were psychologists. So our whole life has always been about, but now walk in other people's shoes and see what their point of view is and where are they coming from. And I think that was, that was helpful in making me want to be an actor. It's a skill set that I was learning from a very young age. Getting immersing in is what I like to do. I, I like to get in as deep as I can vocally, physically. Let's put, you know, let's slap some makeup on them and put hair on them so that it's as f close as we can get to a fully realized human being in four minutes. I'll continue my conversation with Keegan Michael Key after a break. He'll pull back the curtain on the writing process behind Key and Peel and why the pair are choosing to bring the show to an end. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Blink, helping homeowners and renters keep an eye on what's happening at home while they're away. Blink's battery-powered high-definition video cameras use motion sensors to deliver instant video alerts right to your smartphone or check in anytime with Live View. Cameras can be placed almost anywhere in your home, and installation is super easy, too. Learn more at BlinkForHome.com. Get $10 off your order with the promo code BLINKNPR. The biggest two weeks of this year's U.S. presidential election are here. The Republican and Democratic National Conventions in Cleveland and Philadelphia. But if the news is a lot to keep up with, don't. Just keep up with the NPR Politics Podcast. They'll be at the conventions doing quick daily episodes first thing every morning. Know what's happening and what it means without that cable news hangover. Find the NPR Politics Podcast on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian and Emmy Award-nominated actor Keegan-Michael Key. He stars with his sketch comedy partner Jordan Peele in the movie Keanu, which is available to buy this week. I spoke with Keegan-Michael Key last year. When you were making this show, I've heard you say that you very specifically thought we want to make this in some way a black show. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What did that mean for you? We wanted to make it a black show, but also the more important thing, what it meant to me is I want to be able to show a bunch of different African-American experiences because the big danger is that there's a single story for the black experience. That's the danger. It's not true because African-Americans, just like Caucasian-Americans or Asian-Americans or Hispanic-Americans, we're not a monolith. I mean, uh, so that was what was important to get on the screen is different types, different parts of the African-American experience. I would never expect anybody to write from a place they didn't know. But because of the thing you had mentioned before, you said in this aggregate experience that Jordan and I have had, We've woven in and out of different experiences. We're like cultural referees in a way. 
but we're also participating in the game. So it's standing back and watching different cultural phenomena and then diving into it because we're in a unique position where we can. And so I think that we wanted to have a mosaic of black experiences. And then you're still allowed to put that under the heading of the African-American experience, i.e. black. Um, And so that was important to me because, look, we can't help it anyway. So we may as well embrace it. I have melanin in my skin. So if I open my mouth and I perform, I'm making some kind of racial statement whether I want to or not. So we may as well embrace it. And that's what we did. It seems to me like one of the great challenges of anyone who isn't from, you know, the hegemonic cultural groups in entertainment is that you don't get a lot of chances at self-representation as a general rule. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe if you're from a relatively large, uh, small cultural group like African-American, you might get to make some things that are just for your group. Um, or you might get the chance to do things that, you know, don't have a lot of cultural specificity, you know, like just be the second best friend on a sitcom or something like that. But it, it seems like it is super difficult to have a chance to do things that are both specific and varied that are also not specifically exclusively for an African-American audience or whatever cultural group it is. Yeah. I feel like we've been given the opportunity to do that, though. And I feel like we have. The the funny thing is very often what we're observing is referential stuff about an era that that everybody uh, on the staff and Jordan and I are from, an era that we're from. So if you think about the Reginald Vell Johnson sketch, um, you know, where he's like, how is Urkel becoming the more – uh, famous, uh, you know, this was supposed to be my show. This was supposed to be the working class Cosby show. What's happened? I'm going to stop you here and we're going to listen to a little bit of this sketch. So basically in this sketch, what is happening is the producer of Family Matters mm-hmm. is in his office and we hear Reginald Vell Johnson, the nominal star of the show, uh, and then Urkel enters. Did I do that? Jaleel. Jaleel? There is no Jaleel. Only Steve. It's always been Steve. Give me Kanye! Forgetting something, Carl. Don't you come near me. Stay away from me, here. Could have all been so simple, Carl. Just say your lines and take the money. You monster! What are you doing? I, I, I can't control. Am I doing this? No, 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 no. See, uh, I'll do anything. You will do what I want on Family Matters. <laughs> yes. Oh, of course, Steve. See you on set, Carl. That's one of those experiences where the sketch happens to 
involve African-Americans. That's kind of a signature thing that I think we do. But sometimes I don't think we think about it necessarily. Just one of the writers thought it was hilarious that he was reading old synopses of Family Matters plots. And he's going, these are real plots. These are real <laughs> plots. Like, you know, Urkel and Carl were in a time machine. They went back in time. And then another Urkel who was like a pirate had come through a wormhole. Like, what is going on? This is ridiculous. I am an actual I, actor. I'm I have a, talent. I'm, I'm a, a human. I'm a human I'm being. I'm a human man. I'm a human man who... <laughs> Who has a perspective on the world? What is happening? Why am I in a science fiction show? When did it turn into a science fiction show? But it's still – it's a show that contains African-American characters. And and so that's one of the scenes I think that has that, that type of specificity that you're talking about. But then we're trying to mine the human experience more than anything very often. It's just going, this is a sketch about vanity. This is a sketch about fear. This is a sketch about trying to look cooler than you actually are. And they just happen to have black people in them. I want to play another sketch from Key and Peele. So um, this character named Gary is invited to the home of, of a black family who's looking for advice on a gay wedding that's going to happen in their family. It's their cousin. Um, and he is taking questions uh, about what happens in a gay marriage. And, uh, yeah, so I think many of your signature characters, like this one, are characters who strain to remain reasonable. <laughs> yes. In extraordinary circumstances. Let's take a listen. Now, none of us are gay. So I assume that we would all sit then in the straight section. The, the straight section? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, the uh, straight section, he means as opposed to the gay section. No, no, no. There's, there's, there's no sections, guys. But the gay people... No, no, no. What You would just sit and on... In the straight... No, Larry, Larry, listen to but me. But in the aisle. Yeah, it, you, would just, you would just sit on the side of the person that you were friends with or that your family's members... Just, just like in a straight wedding. So we just guess who's gay. Or not. You could just... Yeah. We'll guess who's gay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Guess <laughs> who's gay. When in the ceremony <laughs> do we sing over the rainbow? <laughs> That's so bad. You just heard Gary Anthony Williams and Lance Reddick, who were just, just everybody was phenomenal in this sketch. It's just one of my favorite sketches. Everybody brought their A game. They were stellar. What's wonderful about the sketch, and it's one of my absolute favorites from the show and in general, is I like that, um, you know, your character is essentially offering a kind of cultural translation. Yes, yes. And... Like, it's not about, like, at no point is it about these, like, as horrible as some of the things that these people say are, none of them are about them being hateful. Right. It's just this, it's it's like new levels of ignorance. Right, exactly, right. And, and, and them trying to parse out the ignorance or figure a way through it. They're really, they're making an effort. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of it is it's the, it's the nature of a lot of the stuff we do. It comes from our improv background. All of our writers have an improv background. Or the majority of our writers have an improv background. And so much of it comes from yes anding, the concept of whatever anybody offers, you agree with it in the affirmative and then you add on to that idea, which is hard to make our brains do that. But that's what an improviser does. You train your brain to do that. Because basically if you disagree with something that happens on stage, it's that's the end of that's the, the end scene. That's the end of the scene. Nothing yeah, you know, can go from here, there. Here, I wanted to give you this antique pen. That's oh, this isn't, pen. this isn't a pen. This is a feather. Right. Well, that's the end of well, that that's scene. that's the end of that scene. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, you, you have to accept it's a pen and then say, oh, my God, I didn't know that it was inscribed to blah, blah, blah. And then you go from there. But, but – I think that that has been infused in our staff. So the thing is helping each other along is intrinsic to the work that we do. So as opposed to them – yeah, they're, they're, 
it's there it's those levels of ignorance they're trying to achieve something together as opposed to just name calling which you see in a lot of comedy you know is name calling so we're trying to achieve something as opposed to name calling and that becomes a kind of a touchstone of the work that we do it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne I'm talking to comedian and Emmy Award-nominated actor Keegan-Michael Key. I spoke with Keegan-Michael Key last year. So, Keegan, you are, you've announced, uh, or you and Jordan have announced, that um, the fifth season of Key and Peele is going to be the last season of the show. Yeah. And I was listening to an interview that you did on the Nerdist show a few years ago. I mean, it was like literally maybe the second season of the show with yeah. uh, with Chris Hardwick, Chris Hardwick and, Joan, and Jonah Ray and Matt Myra. And... Um, the two of you were unanimous in say, seemed to be unanimous in saying even then, look, if we have the chance to be a meteor, we would rather be a meteor that passes through the sky than something that is and becomes an institution. Right. Yeah. And I think I think I, I wouldn't want I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for, but yeah, I wouldn't want people to say, Oh, that's just a thing that we do because we're Americans. We just we watch Can Peel. That's just a thing that we do. It hasn't really been good since the third season. Or the fourth season. That, yeah, I, the, being the meteor is the more important, I think, the more important thing. If you can be a phenomenon and then try to create a new phenomenon um, on down the road, it's, it's, it's why when you look at the careers of certain people, like um, I mean, James Dean, not by his own volition, you know, was a meteor. And we don't have any idea what the work would be afterwards. And, and Jimi Hendrix, we don't know what the work would be. So they capture our imaginations because we can always dream about what would be. So are you guys going to die in a car accident or drug overdose? Well, it will be a, a move to Africa. Move to, <laughs> we might do all three. I'd just drive a Porsche yeah. really on the Serengeti as fast as we possibly can with needles yeah. hanging out of our arms. That would be great. <laughs> no, no um, but that's a good movie. I like that idea for a movie. That should be the first scene in a movie. Why is that guy driving in a Porsche with a needle hanging out of his arm with his best friend screaming in the past? Are they on the Serengeti? Uh, you know, how does that movie end? I'd like to see that. Well, Keegan, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye again. It was, it was great to get to talk to you. You too, Jesse. I, I love coming here. This is great. Keegan-Michael Key is one of the co-creators and stars of Key and Peel on Comedy Central. He's just been nominated in two different Emmy categories for 2016, Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series for Key and Peel, and Outstanding Character Voiceover Performance for his work on the animated show Supermansion. His movie Keanu is released on digital HD this week. Thank you, Keegan. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. On the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Titus Burgess plays a struggling Broadway actor. He's desperately needy, demanding both attention and money from the show's title character. He sings at the drop of a hat. He's transparently conniving and manipulative. But he's also sweet charming, and just super lovable. He shows his tough past and his lonely circumstances, and he's a real friend. That warmth comes from my guest Titus Burgess, who's been nominated for an Emmy for the role. Burgess was himself a struggling Broadway actor once upon a time, living in a basement apartment in Harlem, just like his character, although I don't think he took in any women escaping from underground sex cults like his character does on the show. Here's a scene from the first episode. Kimmy Schmidt, played by Ellie Kemper, has moved to New York and moved in with Titus, but she is completely naive. Um, she's never lived in the big city, but she also, as I mentioned before, just got out of an underground sex cult. Um, so she doesn't really know about anything. In this scene, she's devastated because her backpack got stolen, and inside it was her life savings. 
Get your things and go home. New York City is not for you. You don't understand. Oh, I do understand. But Titus... Girl, my name is not Titus. My name is Ronald Wilkerson. I came here in 1998 on a damn bus from Chickasaw County, Mississippi. You know who leaves Chickasaw County? Nobody. Have you ever met a person from Mississippi? No, but I haven't met anybody. My point is... This was me then. I was cute, just like you. Showed my teeth when I smiled, just like you. I changed my name to Titus Andromedon, and I marched myself into audition for The Lion King. You were in The Lion King on Broadway? Yes, except I was not. I auditioned for The Lion King 20 times in 15 years until they finally told me you are not passing as a straight giraffe. But you are such a good singer, I heard you. I have not sung in public in three years. You want to know what I do now? I dress up in that robot costume in Times Square and I pass out flyers for an arcade. My boss is 17 years old, I get paid in quarters, and I'm starting to think cab drivers are hitting me on purpose. Well, you got out of Mississippi. Escaping is not the same as making it, Kimmy. I'm very scared to ask you this. Yes, there was weird sex stuff in the bunker. Let me finish. How much money was in your backpack? $13,000. No, 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 no! Why? I spoke to Titus Burgess last year. Titus Burgess, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jesse. There's a lot going on in that scene. Uh, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So, you know, there are obvious parallels in this character's life and yours, um, although I I hope that you're not quite as sort of venal as Titus on uh, on Unbreakable is. But um, I want to start with where you're from. You're not from Mississippi, but you are from outside Athens, Georgia. Uh, I am. I, I wonder if you could tell me about you know, where you're from and just kind of the circumstances of your childhood. Let's see. Uh, you got that correct. I was uh, born in Athens, Georgia, but lived outside of Athens, Georgia in a little town called Winterville for most of my life. Um, my family, everyone's still there. I'm the only oddball that decided to um, pick up and move to New York. Um, I was raised in a very large extended family, lots and lots and lots of first cousins, but I'm an only child. My mother later married, now I have two stepbrothers, but most of my upbringing was uh, me by myself entertaining myself and entertaining my family and whatnot. You know, it's a familiar story. I'm sure uh, other entertainers have experienced this sort of um, self-talent cultivation kind of thing. When you were like a middle schooler or a teenager, did you think of yourself as gay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I knew in in uh, elementary school, buddy, I, I, very early on. Uh, I, I, I knew that I liked uh, men, boys, but I didn't know that that's what it was called. Uh, I just knew I had zero interest in girls outside of playing jump rope with them. I wonder, like, what did you know about what that meant? Even even when you were more sophisticated, you know, even when you're 16 or 15 or 16 or something like that. I knew that that meant that it did not follow the model that uh, was set for us in this country, particularly, uh, you know, where anything other than friendly feelings was, um, you know, frowned upon. I knew that that. Uh, you know, all of my peers had little girlfriends or whatever. My my guy friends all had girlfriends, and 
And I never did. And I never attempted to. I never tried to. And I never wanted to. Uh, I wanted to be close to them. But I don't know that I thought that I had to call it something um, until I began to express it more and was then told subsequently that this is an incorrect way to live. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'll finish my conversation with Titus Burgess after a break. We'll talk about the time he was on stage on live television on the Tony Awards and his microphone broke. It's a bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The biggest two weeks of this year's U.S. presidential election are here. The Republican and Democratic National Conventions in Cleveland and Philadelphia. But if the news is a lot to keep up with, don't. Just keep up with the NPR Politics Podcast. They'll be at the conventions doing quick daily episodes first thing every morning. Know what's happening and what it means without that cable news hangover. Find the NPR Politics Podcast on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. Hey, you work hard. You play harder. You look great and you smell fantastic. You deserve a vacation where you can kick back, hone your creativity, enjoy incredible comedy performances, and make some new lifelong friends in a maybe haunted inn in the Poconos Mountains. We've got The Adventure Zone, JJ Go, Joe Firestone's Friends of Single People, plus stand-up from Aparna Nancherla, Phoebe Robinson, Kevin Avery, Joel Kim Booster, and way more. Join us for Max FunCon East. September 2nd through 4th, there are only 10 rooms left, so head to MaxFunCon.com and nail down your tickets today. Like now. Do it. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Titus Burgess. You might know him from his appearances as Defuan on 30 Rock on NBC or as Titus Andromedon in the Netflix original show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It's a performance for which he's just received his second Emmy nomination for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy. I want to play a clip from uh, of you performing one of your first big roles on Broadway. Uh, you were in a, a revival of Guys and Dolls in, I'm, I'm going to say, 2009. Does that sound right to you? That's correct. And um, you sang one of the signature songs from the show, and it's you know one mm-hmm. of the one of the great shows. And you got to perform it on the Tony Awards. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's take a listen to it a little bit. And I'll say ahead of time, as you listen to my guest Titus Burgess performing Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat on the 2009 Tonys, your radio isn't broken and neither is our clip playing back equipment. It happened to me kind of funny. Kind of like a dream. Am I going in with it? I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. And by some chance, I had brought my dice along. And there I stood. And I hollered, someone save me. But the passengers, they know right from wrong. Um, What a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, we hear someone... Oh, literally over the TV audio somehow uh, bringing in a microphone uh, to cover for the fact that the microphone that was on your body was, as we heard, sounding awful. Yeah. Could you hear that it wasn't working? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me tell you this. I had this feeling. 
Okay, when I so I had to wear this fat suit. I was a lot smaller in those days, uh, and I could feel the mic pack. I could feel through the suit, and I could feel that it was not secure. But I've never been to Radio City. Maybe this is a different device. Maybe, uh, or at the time I had never been. You know, so 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 maybe I didn't know what I was talking about. So I didn't say anything. But I had a feeling that this thing was not all the way plugged in. And when it started, I thought, my worst nightmare has come true. And also, when you do the Tonys, your dress rehearsal is filmed just in case there are technical difficulties when it airs live. So I thought, oh, well, clearly they have transferred over to our recorded rehearsal for the people at home and the continuation of this performance is strictly for the people inside Radio City Music Hall. It wasn't until I got uh, finished with the performance and got my phone out and had all these missed calls and texts and such and people were like, oh my God, what happened to your microphone or whatever? And then I freaked out. I, I wasn't nervous while it was happening. I freaked out after the fact. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Titus Burgess. He's nominated for an Emmy for his performance as Titus Andromedon on the Netflix show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. As you were getting ready to be on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, um, mm-hmm. a role that you, you know, I was written for you, although I'm sure, you know, since you're not the star of the show, I'm sure you had to go through some auditioning for anyway. I wonder if you were thinking about, if you were being conscious of I want to do this character, um, but I don't want to be gay best friend. Oh, absolutely, man. I never have any interest in that gay best friend or just best friend who who's black sidekick, which is so often a visual stereotype, if you will, that we see in uh, comedies. Um, and it's, it's almost, it, it almost looks like, um, an afterthought. It almost looks like, a just to appease. I thought, you know, there's so much more we can say and do with this man. What kind of choices do you think you can make as an actor? I mean, you don't write the show. Um, what kind of choices do you think you can make that make it the kind of character that you want to play? Well, no, you know, I don't write it, but I certainly inform it. And I certainly, you know, have uh, Tina and Robert are are very collaborative and they listen and they they let me say stuff here and there about how I feel, you know, Titus should be played out. But they're also very sensitive and very culturally aware. Um, So I don't have to do a great deal of um, recalibrating to make Titus be what people saw. It was very much thought out, uh, although in me and mine, but long before I got there. Um, and I just sort of sanded off the rough edges, uh, if you will. But, uh, you know, I, I can always, the actor or actors can also always, um, Say a line differently, give it a different intention. Um, you know, subtext is is uh, one of our greatest allies. 
Um, so there's so many things that can be done, so many ways to play and say a single sentence, a single word. You know what I mean? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Titus Burgess. He's just received his second Emmy nomination for his role in the Netflix comedy Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt has tried to engage with the kind of cultural breadth of New York, which is its center. And that is one of the themes of the show being is that the protagonist is a woman who uh, comes from almost an absence of culture, not because she's like a traditional Midwestern uh, naive, but more because she lived in an underground bunker for eight years. Right. Um, she was removed from culture. Sure. And so, yeah, so she doesn't know anything about the world. And, and she's in New York, this place that is a, you know, a cauldron of a thousand cultures. That has been, you know, slightly problematic because it's hard to write about those things when you're writing a big show like this, you know, a big, broad, cartoony, jokey show. It's hard to muscle in the specificity that's required. But I think it's the show's done a really interesting job of using that kind of specificity and using the arc of the season to transform stereotypes into commentary. And one of the smaller instances of that is this arc for your character where he has been working at a theme restaurant. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's like a Broadway theme restaurant. And he his character is a werewolf. Um, and so he has been – he doesn't take off his costume after work one day. Um, and he's sort of lurching around the city. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's let's take a listen to Titus Burgess on on the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So, how's your day? Walking around New York dressed like a werewolf got weird. Why, Mr. Burgess? Oh no 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 no! I don't need a cab. I was just waving. I didn't do anything. Nice day, officer. Can you hold my baby? treated better as a werewolf than I ever did as a black man. <laughs> it's it's really it's something. <laughs> it's a great joke. It's a great um, joke. It's also I mean it's also a really kind of a powerful yeah, unfortunately yeah, yeah, indeed. Exactly, yeah. It's also kind of a powerful thing, you know. It is a powerful thing, buddy. Uh the, but the, it's one of the reasons why I'm so proud of our show and uh and the uh, sensitivity with which we handle uh, the the political uh, cultural climate uh, in this country, uh, and uh, but I, I think I think it, they they are so smart about it. It's not heavy handed. In it, if you aren't really really paying attention, it's just sort of like a drive by. Well, that's a poor choice of words. Uh, it's a uh, it's 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 sort of zips past you. You know you don't you don't. Uh, they don't call attention to it, but they certainly talk about it, and um, it's re- it's handled with such care. But uh, that was a that was a great episode. I, I loved that one. Do people talk to you about um, playing this character? That is, I mean, on the one hand, so big and broad and jokey as everything on the show is, mm-hmm. um, but also that represents a real specific group of people to which, you know, in, in real life you also belong. 
and does it in a way that there there hasn't been a lot of representation. There elsewhere. hasn't been a lot of representation that has treated us like real human beings, capturing both uh, our eccentricities as well as the subtle parts of all of us that make us uh, most human. And um, so I, I, you know, I certainly am not uh, desirous of, of hoping to walk around being um, praised and lauded for pioneering or anything strange like that. Um, but I am excited that um, I can hold my head up and, and be proud of um, the work that we're doing and that, that uh, it represents um, a part of my culture um, so well. And, uh, and I would even say it represents um, an even smaller subculture that is more often uh, ignored uh, than not. You know, there aren't a lot of gay, out black men that are talked about on television, let alone celebrated. So I, I think um, this is, it treats it with sensitivity. I think it's smart. And I think it, um, I think she captured it, it wonderfully. I really do. We've come to the portion of our interview where we talk about Pinot Noir. Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, it's one of the best things, uh, basically. Um, I think we'll take a listen to it. So basically, uh, the plot of this particular episode of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is that your character, whose name is Titus, and my guest is also named Titus, Titus Burgess, um, is making a low-budget music video trying to go viral and jumpstart his career. Um, uh, this song is called Pinot Noir, um, and he is of the belief that when one is making songs, the lyrics are not important as long as they rhyme. So let's take a listen. tell you, Titus, it's the first clip we've ever played on our show that has precipitated me uh, having to write an email to the lawyers <laughs> at National Public Radio that says, Dear lawyers at National Public Radio, very nice, um, can you say an ode to black penis on NPR? Oh, my God. Obviously, they said yes. Or are you going to edit this out? <laughs> they said uh, they actually said no. This is if if this makes the cut, it'll be on the podcast. But okay. I, I didn't want to not discuss it. Uh, but one of the really cool things about that is that joke. I mean, a it's a great joke that it's, the song is called Pinot Noir, and then he says it's because it's an ode to black penis. Um, but also, I have to say, like in watching it, that was like kind of an exciting thing to hear a 
black gay character say on TV, as ridiculous as it sounds, just... The acknowledgement, the sheer acknowledgement? Yeah, just acknowledging the sexuality of a black gay man um, in a way that isn't uh, in a way that isn't mocking or uh, derogatory. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of spectacular. It is extremely spectacular, Pinot Noir. <laughs> um, it is, and, but that's what I mean about Tina and Robert. Listen, man, like they, I just they are. W- 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 there's been several uh, outlets that. Early on, you know, spoke about, you know, racial stereotypes and got some, quote unquote, backlash, albeit minimal and ridiculous. Um, But I love that they don't shy away from the fullness of who he is. They let him be three dimensional. And um, it's New York. It is this gay black man who who fully takes up the space that he inhabits uh, and perhaps other people's space as well. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but, you know, it, it, it's just so lovely to have all of him celebrated. And also what I find so funny about it is we, we make the joke once, but then the, the song, although an ode or celebration of, Actually, we there's no allusion to it. We don't allude to it anymore, really, unless you are associating it with black with that every single time we say Pinot Noir. You know what I mean? So I just, but that's what's so brilliant about the absolute ridiculousness of of it all. But um, I couldn't agree with you more. It's it, it was it's lovely to to. Uh, watched particularly in this climate, but that's another story. Can I tell you, Titus, that was one of the things we had to address with the lawyers. It was like, well, if we leave out the ode to black penis part, then is that okay? And it turns out that because they say the ode to black penis part, that makes the rest of it about black penis, whether or not they say black penis or not. Right. (laughs) And since you can't talk about penises in a sexual way, uh, in a non-news or, uh, you know, medical context on the radio. Legally speaking, we were out of luck. Well, that's all right. Tell them to watch the show. Does your character's signature song from season one uh, make you more or less likely to order Pinot Noir when out and about? <laughs> I try not to do it in front of people because I just, I mean, I just... <laughs> I I don't like a lot of attention. That's how Titus and myself differ. I'm very introverted, and I don't. I'm not very flashy, and I don't enjoy going out. And I just I don't. I've never had. I'd rather have you over to my house, and I'd rather cook and play the piano and just hang out. Um, it's a deal. When when are we going to do that? You whenever you are, whenever you come to this coast, my friend. Um, but uh, I. I'll, I, I drank Pinot Noir before uh, this TV show, and uh, and I rather enjoy it. So I usually will have my partner um, order it for me, or you know, uh, or I'll just excuse myself and have have him order it or something like that. Just so because I don't want people to, I don't want to seem presumptuous, or and I certainly don't want um, them to feel any bizarre obligation to, you know 
give me a bottle on the house or something. And also, if they don't recognize me, I certainly don't want to give them a reason to recognize me because I'd like to be left alone. So I just kind of avoided it at all costs or try and sneak it in on the down low. Titus Burgess, I really appreciate you taking the time to come be on Bullseye. It was really great to talk to you. I'm such a fan of uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and, and such a fan of yours. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun, man. Titus Burgess is nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series for his role in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Every week on the show, we like to close with a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. So I had a friend in college named Gene, and Gene swore up and down to me that Fletch was a great movie. I had sort of missed Chevy Chase's glory years. My earliest memories of him are from his TV show. I mean, I can vaguely recall liking The Three Amigos, but mostly I remember, if I'm honest, not understanding why he was a famous person. But This is what would happen when I would visit my friend Gene's dorm room. I would knock, and he'd yell for me to let myself in, and I'd open the door, and he'd be there on his computer, and he'd look up at me, and he'd smile impishly, and then he would click play on the MP3 of the theme from Fletch. And then he would say, Jesse, time for some investigating. The immense pleasure that he took in this stupid song and this stupid idea was honestly pretty infectious. And so finally, one day, Gene convinced me to watch Fletch. I was absolutely sure it would be awful. And boy, was I wrong. Excuse me, senor. You are a member of the club? Uh, No, I'm not. I'm with the Underhills. They are left, senor. That's all right. They'll be back. He went out for his urinalysis. Would you like some drinks, senor? While you wait, I will put it on the Underhills bill. Yes, very good. I'll have... uh... Bloody Mary and a steak sandwich and a steak sandwich, please. Very good. Fletch is peak Chevy Chase, an actor at the apex of his completely nonplussed powers. In Fletch, Chevy Chase plays, I mean, basically Chevy Chase, a guy who has zero investment in anything around him and just kind of wants to goof around. This scene, uh, which is right at the beginning of the movie, was apparently a big catalyst for Chase's characterization in Fletch. I'll give you a thousand dollars cash. Just come to my house and listen to the proposition. Does this proposition entail my dressing up as little Bo Peep? It's nothing of a sexual nature, I assure you. Yeah, I assure you. One thousand just to listen? I don't see how you can pass that up, Mr. Nugent. Ted Nugent. Uh, I guess... It should be said for clarity's sake that his character's name is not actually Ted Nugent. Anyway, as soon as Chevy Chase figured out that he could do something as stupid as tell someone his name was Ted Nugent, it was basically off to the races. John Cocteau Stone. (laughs) It's a beautiful name. Well, it's Scott Germain. It's an odd combination. Yeah, well, so are my parents. Uh, My name is Igor Stravinsky, and I'm calling about some uh, ranch property I'd like to buy. Name's Liddy. Gordon Liddy. I'm sorry, who are you again? I'm Frida's boss. Who's Frida? My secretary. I've heard Chase's shtick described as smug, 
glib smartassery. But it's not. It's basically bluffing. In Fletch, he's a weirdo whose game is to do the most ridiculous thing that he can think of and see if he can sell it as normal. That it's coming from this handsome, waspy, super straight dude, as far as I'm concerned, just makes it funnier. It's not about putting people down or even really making wisecracks. It's just a game of what's the dumbest thing I can do while maintaining a straight face. Don't worry about the speed limit here. Uh, that's why we got the police escort. You a cop? As far as you know. Are you going to take me to jail for car theft? Why, did you steal the car? I sure did. Well, I'm not even sure that's a crime anymore. There have been a lot of changes in the law. Fletch has a fun sort of mystery plot, and it moves quickly enough, and there's good supporting performances, but mostly, mostly it is just Chevy Chase thinking of new silly stuff to do. Chase, just like David Letterman, was sort of the father to anti-comedy. There's no Norm MacDonald without them, no Tim and Eric. He was just above and outside the world he inhabited, but also absolutely, assuredly running the show. For better or worse, he didn't do try-hard comedy. It's not John Belushi doing anything for a laugh. It seems effortless, and it's easy to dismiss for that reason. And... You know, it's harder to connect with than like Robin Williams, who's so sweet and working so hard for you. But there's something magical to me about Fletch telling someone his name is Igor Stravinsky or pretending to drop files at a hospital desk over and over until a nurse is so confused that she tells him a vital clue or actually until she speaks it into the end of a stethoscope he's holding up to her mouth. Where's the record room? Uh, 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 next to pathology. Would you do me a favor and take care of these things? Uh, I'd like to check Alan Stanwyck's file. Uh, what the hell is happening? Hey, Where the hell's the record room? Next to pathology. B1. I can't hear you. What? Uh, B1. Would you just collate these for me? Where'd you say that was? B1. B1. Thank you very much. You can take the elevator. Thank you very much. Maybe it's just a power fantasy, this idea that even as the world seems like it's falling apart around you, everything's actually going according to plan. You're, you know, dissolute and living on a beach and wishing you were a basketball player and behind in your child support, but actually you've got it all under control. That for once the little guy's in charge and the little guy's name is Mr. Babar. And yes, that's spelled with one B in the middle. And no, he's never heard of a children's elephant of the same name. Must be a coincidence. Thanks, Gene. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci. Production assistant at Maximum Fun is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Soup Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our thanks to him and to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Neil Rauch at NPR New York and to Dr. Rosen Rosen for engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out sister podcast Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. Find Pop Rocket at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.